Black podcast, which is all about the game of entrepreneurship. The peach represents the highlight reel that we all tell on a daily basis as entrepreneurs, the Instagram to our reality. The black represents the stories and lessons of this game that are usually left in the dark. I am your host, Charlie Regis. I'm the co-founder and global business development director of the digital product studio, Peach Studios. And today we talk all things health tech with one of the most influential people in the game, Dr. James Summeru. He is the founding partner of HS Ventures, which builds, scales, and invests in the best health tech startups in the world. He's the producer and host of the HS podcast, which has listeners in over 100 countries. And he's a content creator for Forbes on all things health tech. Today, we cover why the coronavirus is leading to the most intense period of innovation in health tech history. We dip into what it's like to run an accelerator and some of the mistakes that startups make in these environments and the differences between raising money for your startup and raising money for your VC fund. It is always a blast having a chat with James and I hope you guys find it valuable. Dr. James Summeru, thank you for joining the Peach Black Podcast, my friend. How are you doing? You're very welcome, sir. I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good stuff. Good stuff. So... Um, I really want to touch on something that everybody is is diving into right now, which is you have first line experience of being with the NHS when uh, throughout your career. What is it like for the guys and the girls on the ground right now going through this crazy moment in history? Yeah, it's equal parts frightening. I guess in a way, a bit exciting with purpose that you're you know contributing something that's like you know just. It, we're going to be talking about this for decades, even longer, right? So even being part of it from that perspective at least gives you some purpose. But I so I actually did a podcast on this um, nice. the other week with a guy called Amon Gupta. So he's one of my friends. He's an ICU doctor on the ground floor. And he was saying that, you know, actually they're in this sort of preparation phase. So a lot of them are kind of, a lot of the hospitals and a lot of the, the locations are actually quietening down because they know that there's going to be such an onslaught of um, patients and, and, you know, people that are critically unwell, all of that's coming. So a lot of it at the minute is just clearing the decks, getting ready for that stuff. Now that said, there are hospitals, particularly in London, you know, Northwick Park's one that's already full. They're ICU's full. They've been diverting for, you know, I think a week or so. Um, and these things are, you know, changing all the time. But I think in some places the capacity is getting there, but in others they're just sort of quiet, free, waiting. I mean, there's that um, 4,000 bed hospital that they've just hospital they've just built in the Excel Center. Unbelievable. Like, like unre- what an unreal effort that has been. You know, yeah. 500 of those beds are ITU beds as well, sort of with like ventilators and oxygen and stuff. So that's the, you know, everybody's getting ready for this stuff now because we know, we know how prevalent it is in the population. We know that X percent are going to need ITU care. So everyone's just kind of getting ready at the minute right now, dude. And NHSX, that new kind of techie innovation bit of the NHS have been, mm. they, they put something out on Saturday, a blog out on Saturday saying that they're now working with Microsoft, um, Google, company called Palantir and another called Faculty AI. And they're, they're now doing this like real time dashboard based on all the data that they're picking up from the COVID tests that are being done in the community and ITUs and all this stuff. So they've now got these like dashboards that are, that are predicting where the resource needs to go and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, like crazy stuff that's happening. 
Yeah, and no, I think one of the, the amazing things that's going to come out of this is you're going to see major players come together to collaborate, to bring solutions to, to the people, right? Yeah. You know, and I think some of the names that you've mentioned there, knowing that they're getting involved is something that at least gives me a little bit of hope that, mm. um, you know, the trajectory of, you know, when this thing might start to open up for everybody and when we might start to see you know, a serious decline can be influenced by these major moments of discoveries and yeah. stuff like the hospital created in the XL. Um, I saw this weird but crazy video from China. I'm sure you came across it where it was highlighting how they're using the data that they collect on a daily basis from WeChat, from their CCT cameras, um, and how they're using that data to basically track the spread yeah. and possible spread of coronavirus. And I think it's so interesting to see how different, um, different governments, different strategies have been put in place to try and, try and get a hold of this thing. Um, from everything that you understand, everything that you're reading, I mean, people can't get away mm. from it. I don't want this podcast to be all about this, mm. but where do you see this in two months time, three months time? Like, what are you seeing? What are you predicting? I just have to go to what people have said to me, which is that at that point we might still be within the peak. It might, it might be on the downslope. We don't know, but, um, I, I, I think there will be a lot of people still critically and well at that point. And it's, it's interesting that, we're learning a lot from what we're seeing from Italy who, you know, were two weeks ahead with their numbers and stuff. So we, we can, we can see kind of what the future is two weeks in advance in terms of two months in advance. Yeah. I guess we're less sure. We hope that the measures that we put in have, have definitely slowed things down and we, you know, we don't get over that critical mass of stuff, but I think, you know, in, in two months time as well, the, there've been a lot more of these data plays. So this kind of the dashboard stuff, redirecting resources, a lot more innovation will have happened by then. People in the community will have moved to telemedicine stuff. You know, our w whole working life's changed. Our whole actual life has changed. This has now bled into like how we go about our daily lives. And even if in two, three months we're on that downslope, things aren't going to ever go back to how they were. There, there is so much innovation that has happened in healthcare in the last four weeks that has been quicker than in the last four years. Wow. Like, it is it is nuts just i mean if you look how quickly so in my lifetime in digital health right or health tech um telemedicine has gone from being this idea that you should see a doctor on a phone <laughs> to like just you know two months ago it was something that you know starting to get accepted you know the research says this and you know people are adopting it here and there and then in the last four weeks it's just rolled out nationally like end of story it's just everywhere and yeah. we don't care who comes to the market. We don't really care too much about how good it is or the security or like the information governance, like just get in, just get people using it. And we'll think about that stuff afterwards because at the end of the day, there's a bigger problem to be solved here. And that's kind of the huge shift in, in the mentality of innovators in healthcare, which has just been, it's been incredible to watch to be honest from my side of the table, you know, supporting Q-Doctor, you know, myself, um, as part of all of our stuff, you know, Q Doctor, a telemed company, and and you know the phone's been off the hook, and they've been doing this a long time as well. So they've they've ironed out a lot of their creases, and there are a lot of people pivoting in, but those guys have been doing this for a while, and and like you know, there's a lot of ground to be made for those companies right now to to really change things forever. Because yeah, once you've started using stuff like telemedicine and it works for you, yeah, you're unlikely to go back if, especially to to those days of you know a poor ninety year old having to 
be an all-day effort to have this five-minute appointment with a GP. You know, it's ludicrous that that stuff is still or was still happening four weeks ago. I, I doubt it'll be happening at the same scale, even, yeah. even now when those people get used to it. I completely agree. It's almost like a, a moment of war that we're in right now on a global scale where war is a yeah. huge driver of innovation, you know, and it feels like this is having a, a very similar effect on health tech. And I think it does seem like quite a, a risk averse industry where adoption is slow. There's a lot of resistance to adoption for a whole number of reasons. And it's so refreshing that people now are in a situation where they, they just hit the gas. You know, right, let's get it in, let's test it. And if you have built something that I think the companies that are going to be doing the best are the ones that have been around for a little while. You know, they've got a a pretty Mm. polished product that executes on the value proposition and you're just in a position to get it in there. You know, this is the moment that you've almost been waiting for as a company like that. Um, Completely agree, yeah. And I think it's very interesting. Look, I'm, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and I want to take it back. Um, you clearly have this very entrepreneurial mindset and this entrepreneurial spirit about you. Um, but you know, this wasn't always the path that you chose. I'm interested Mm. as to why the the path of a doctor was the one that you went for, um, in the first phase of your career. Mm. It's a good question. So in terms of careers and I, you know, I give a lot of advice to people in medicine that want to leave and, and, and vice versa and all the rest of it. I think for me there was an element of it was it was the only thing on the table for 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 a variety of reasons i think top top of the class roughly there or thereabouts for most of my school life it was like law doctor yeah my dad was a nurse well he so my dad's entrepreneur i guess but he started in nursing he was a nurse for most of his career but then left to buy and sell nursing homes and and did all that stuff afterwards. So he had this kind of clinical grounding. And so, so he saw the life of a doctor as one that was wonderfully secure, respected in the community, wealthy, you know, solid to be a doctor. So, you know, those oils uh, wheels were oiled and greased you know to be like oh yeah it's a, this is a good path to go to so it kind of just it, it kind of just was that I was going to become a doctor you know there was never I never remember a decision that I made to be like oh I like science and I like people it was more just like James is going to be a doctor you know so it never really was a decision so I guess but it's, in, it's interesting you say that about the entrepreneurial spirit and stuff you know I can <laughs> I can remember when I was about about seven years old, we I used to have this uh, history before morning break, and I, I can remember throughout that morning break every week, I just used to blast out everyone's homework for them. So about like a B <laughs> or C standard, hugely profitable, hugely yeah. profitable <laughs> B or C standard for everybody. Like you'd mix it up, you'd answer a few things here and there, and then I'd go home and and do it to my standard later Easy on. Work. But like. So I was think bits and bobs like that as you do and like, you know, undercutting the top shop and all the rest of it, you know, all that stuff yeah. was, it was in my background, but I, you know, I never, I never really scratched that entrepreneurial itch until I was actually a clinician. And it was through that, that I was, I was more of an entrepreneur to be honest, because mm. I was just helping, um, I was helping patients, you know, eight to 10 of them a day as an anesthetist in intensive care. But then I realized that I was obstructed by the system. That's, that's why I couldn't treat more people because it was the system that was stopping me treating more people, not what I could have done more, you know? So, so born out of frustration, that leap right. into the innovation side of things. 100%, 100%, purely frustration. It was, it was just like, I could be doing so much more. 
why am I writing patient numbers on pieces of paper and writing so much all the time when I could just be doing and it was it was stuff like that you know where does this blood test actually go why does it take why does it take 48 56 hours to come back why can't we speed that up it was just being inquisitive and curious and asking those questions but then actually following it through and I realized that I thought that was a normal thing to think and do but actually the majority are happy complaining about something or at least highlighting it as an issue but then they love their job they love being clinical that's what they want to do and so that's what most of my colleagues were doing and I in a way was jealous of that because I then wanted to do a super difficult thing of being like no I'm just going to sit with this blood culture and like follow it around the hospital (laughs) and I want to know I want to know what happens to it and I'm going to write a business case to change this stuff and everyone's just like you're weird man like you're anyway so that's that's kind of how it that's kind of how it started and how how it progressed but um yeah, then, then I learned how to do business cases. And then, oh man, fucking when I when I learned how to do business cases, it was just like, here's this piece of paper that is just wonderful because everybody stands up and listens to you. You've got a board of people listening to you, you've got a chief exec listening to you, you've got the chief financial officer listening to you. Mm-hmm. So I realized that, hold on a minute, fuck, money makes the world go around, money makes decisions you know, happen. So yeah learn how to do that properly and then all of a sudden all these crackpot ideas of how to change things in the hospital turn into reality so having a taste of that turn into reality i think is probably one of the most influential factors in you very quickly becoming the program director of digital health london right which Mm. is one of the major accelerators in getting ideas and concepts into the nhs i think you worked with around 50 pilots getting them through into the nhs saving the nhs in and around 50 million pounds which is an unbelievable achievement how do you think your experience as a doctor on the front lines impacted your ability to help groom these startups and get them mm. into the NHS? Credibility. I was an expert in the ground floor of medicine. That was undebatable because I'd done 10,000 hours as a clinician. I understood the hospital in a way that only someone in anesthetics can, which is actually a broad view of medicine and surgery pathology. You know, We've, we we had we were we were true generalists as anaesthetists and intensive care doctors that we understood everything about the hospital and so we understood a lot of the professions we understand understood most of the language and, and all that sort of stuff so I would say it was it was large it was credibility and it was it was the understanding of how hospitals worked and add add to the fact that I was also doing all the sort of managerial stuff as well by you know, working with different people to get things in, you know, the the chief exec and all the rest of it. And I used to shadow those sorts of people to learn off them and all the rest of it, all the things that people didn't do. So I had this really unique at the time, kind of weird skill set of understanding clinical, managerial, also policy, because like a few years out and did a bit of policy stuff at NHS England. So I understood that a little bit as well. Um, And that gave me, I could speak a lot of languages, so to speak, I could, and because I'd worked with tech startups to drive projects into hospitals, I could speak tech, I could speak policy, I could speak clinical, I could speak managerial. So I understood the levers to pull. I understood how to get things in. I understood how to make change. And I think that was essentially why we could take those startups and give them just really clear advice. And by the way, it was was often not that groundbreaking stuff. It It was often just stuff like, change the language on your website to actually speak to nurses because they mm. speak in this term and that term and and the board round and all, all these like 
things that as soon as then people read it they're like oh these people get me so maybe i'll speak to them and you know all that sort of stuff as well as the contacts and all the rest of it but i'd say actually language and communication was a huge 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 part of it yeah i think there's a lot of lessons in that to learn from startups in any scene you know i think understanding the language that your potential clients and customers are familiar with and shaping your value proposition and putting it in a message in a way that they are open and comfortable with consuming it is one of the most important things you know particularly if you're you don't have a career in that space mm. you've just highlighted an issue you've highlighted yeah. a problem that you're really keen to try and solve and you're dipping your toes into that scene for the first time i yeah. think you have to customize yourself with their processes their languages their way of working we had this thing um, as you know in the insurance game right mm. i had no background in insurance and all of a sudden we'd stumbled across this technology where it was clothing to health risk tech where we could understand the health risk of big companies that had lots of staff in uniform right and um all of a sudden i have to understand insurance you know i'm very Mm. different to what they're used to seeing coming in and out of the door you know i think i was 23 at the time you Mm. know I'm, I'm, I've got a lot of uphill battles I'm trying to manage yeah. here. The very least yeah. I can do is speak to them in a way that they're going to understand what I'm trying to put on the table. And I Correct. think don't try and be an expert at the same time if you're not. Like if you do have a concept, do research on your industry, but go in there with an open mind saying, look, I have a solution. I think it's really solving a problem for you. And I, I want to throw some ideas around with you about it. And people will be much more receptive to that rather than you not being an expert in the space coming in telling them that everything that they're doing is wrong and yeah. then being surprised when you get rejected because if you don't have that credibility <laughs> then you have no leg to stand on you know i think for founders yeah. it's, it's a big a big and that learning curve a lot. all the time you know i learned that lesson the hard way you know i was going in swinging yeah. saying the way you're evaluating risk is rubbish and it is rubbish but they don't want to hear it it works <laughs> you know it's been working for 70 dude. years I remember even when I was in policy, you know, I was, fr- I was fresh out of clinical. I'd done all these like projects. I'd saved hospitals, like hundreds of thousands. I thought I was the big shot yeah. going into policy, then just being like, I'm going to get them to change policy. And <laughs> yeah, they just sat me down very quickly. <laughs> I was just honest to God, just, I was just kneecapped straight away going like, you cannot make these claims or do these things or, yeah. or call these meetings. Like, I don't know. <laughs> who you think you are <laughs> yeah and I, it was all good intentioned it was just like okay these these systems are different mm-hmm. and actually i need to learn this system before i start trying to innovate in it as well uh, again a really important lesson about humility and actually you know the first stage being learning for any mm-hmm. new system that you're in rather than just going to organs blazing just as you just said it's so, so important yeah 100 percent. um so i want to talk about the shift from digital health london to HS. So HS builds, Mm. scales, and invests in some of the most exciting health startups on the planet. Um, I want to get an understanding of the the reason for the shift, um, Mm. and then I'm going to explore some of the differences, the challenges between being with a pre-established accelerator through to creating a brand that is is trying to make a mark in the space. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, just to talk about that transition a bit then. So, yeah, so I'd run run Digital London for just over a year, I think. So yeah, I, I was part of two different cohorts. So as you say, I'd helped, I'd helped 61 startups, 50 pilots and contracts, 50 million quid saved in all the rest of it. And I think I just got to the point where I'd done everything that I thought I could 
with it to be perfectly honest i think the direction that they needed to move was then to franchise it out into different regions and all these different things and i think it needed it needed a different skill set than what i had because i was trying to push it in a more commercial direction i was trying to push it into more like a, a wealth creation generation uh, um, iteration of like taking equity and um maybe wrapping a company around it and raising some corporate sponsorship and getting some csr money mm-hmm. Like that, that was the route that I wanted to take it down. Whereas they, they had a different vision for it to me as a director at that point, it was like, well, hold on, let me have a chat to them and, and spoke to them about my vision, which was actually all this information that we're putting into series A companies really needs to be at seed. Like we need to be building these companies actually so that we're not having to undo all the work, which is normally the first stage when, when we, when I was there anyway, mm-hmm. of like getting them to unlearn a load of stuff to then relearn it. And I was like, well, what if that was at day one? And so that was essentially the premise for, for starting something new. And, and, and they, they were very supportive and just said, yeah, you, you go and do that yourself. And actually you'll be a feeder accelerator into ours, which has actually nice. now happened with the likes of Q doctor and a couple of others that have now fed into that accelerator. So it was just, you know, finding a, a nice phase for it. But I basically, so I met my co-founder in HS Alex at the launch of Microsoft accelerator. We were both there stood at the back of the room um, and a guy called Tony Young, who's like the NHS innovation guy, he um, he came up behind us and basically banged our heads together and introduced us and said, you two have got a similar ID, you should probably talk. Um, and I remember I had these four PDFs on my desktop about how to start an accelerator as a very entrepreneur kind of research. Let me take my time and learn everything. Yeah. You know, that kind of, let me read about it. Um, you know, taking inspiration from my kind of medical way of doing things. Um, that was the way I'd approached it. And I spoke to Alex and he was just like, yeah, let's do it. Let's just build it. Let's just do it. And then within like a week we had the, you know, he, he sent me a, his business plan and I sent him my ideas and four PDFs. <laughs> he was like, yeah, read them, <laughs> already got them. Um, so there was a lot of synergy there. And I think we had a similar vision for what we wanted to do. And um, he brought a lot of the ground floor entrepreneurial experience because he'd built a, a business. He'd sold a business as a med student. He had a couple of others that were selling to the US and, and, and the rest of it in health tech and ed tech. So my kind of systems knowledge and his kind of building a business from ground up entrepreneur level kind of met in the middle of this thing that we could call an accelerator. So he was giving advice on that stuff. I was giving advice on that stuff and it worked very nicely. And we, and we, we started by with an equity model. So we took equity. Um, we gave support. So we gave funding in kind, if you like, we gave our time and our connections and all that sort of stuff. Um, we then shifted into more of a, a broker model. So we would help companies raise money and take a fee. So we, we tried that model for a bit. We were kind of trying to innovate around the model as well because we were just trying all these different things. But sure. long story short, we helped about 20 companies go through that. Um, and now we're on to raising a fund, basically. And now you're on to the fund. We're going to cycle back to the fund in a bit. And I'm actually going to touch on meeting Alex and, mm. and deciding Alex was the person you were going to go through this with. I think mm. for a lot of founders, choosing that co-founder and then nurturing and mm. managing that relationship over time is mm. a very interesting one. You know, some people are friends before and then kind of mm. jump in something together. Some people yeah. like you and Alex kind of get to know each other along yeah. this journey. You've obviously had access to a lot of co-founding partnerships and seeing yeah. what works, what doesn't, as well as your own experience. What are the key things that you see and that you understand as being the most important when it comes to managing and nurturing that relationship? Because it is the thing that is going to make or break your business. (laughs) Absolutely. 
I mean, it's really basic and it's a theme of, of answers that I give for a load of different topics, but it's communication. I mean, it really is. It is just communication. I think the more that you communicate, the better. I think in terms of us coming together to, to form this, Alex and I were fortunate or unfortunate that we were pretty much the, the only people probably in the country at the time that had this had the complementary skills that we had to even think about doing an accelerator it's perhaps the reason that you know there haven't been many health tech accelerators in the uk there are only a few you know the skill set required to actually understand a healthcare system in the uk that is very much dominated by the public system so you need a very good understanding of that you need a very good understanding of the clinical side you need a very good understanding of insurers the private sector you also know how you, you need to know how to grow a business you need contacts on the investment side you know the ingredients to start an accelerator are actually you know extremely diffuse like there's there's so many things skills knowledge the, the connections that you need that actually it was kind of a no-brainer that alex and i when we met each other were like well he covers this bit i cover this bit actually and, you know he'd been sat on this idea probably longer than i had even it was certainly well more well thought out from his side um from a practical perspective as well it was it was quite ideological from my side but I, I guess you know because i was bringing those connections and because we were connecting that with all of his networks and stuff it kind of it kind of worked and i think going forwards you're going dis- to disagree on stuff you, you're going to you're going to have these times where it's not always hunky dory and wonderful and you know, all the rest of it. But ultimately, I mean, Vaynerchuk talks about all this time, doesn't he about intent? You know, if if your intent is to build a business together, if your intent is to do the best for that company, you're going to be fine. And I think then it's just in terms of communication, it's much like being in, in a normal relationship or, you know, romantic relationship. communicating on the things that you disagree with is, is incredibly important. It's okay to disagree on stuff, but that having those conversations of being upfront is key. And I think as long as you respect each other enough to have that conversation in a, in a decent way, you'll be fine. It is communication, but it, and, it, and it is time as well. Like a function of time is always going to help you because you're going to iron out a lot of these creases and over time you'll find your fit as to where you are together and what you, what you do in the company, all the rest of it. Um, but yeah. That's yeah. my two cents. No, I, I really like the fact that you touched on respect. I think mm. there's always going to be disagreements, right? And mm. understanding how people respond under stress, under pressure, mm. and giving them a little bit of leeway as to, okay, you know, I'm living the same truth right now. I understand yeah. the consequences on the table. I'm not going to jump when there's something that could be nibbled on, you know, yeah. like just having that control, having the respect and having the big picture of the business be the priority mm-hmm. over what you've just said right now could start a fire, you know, like just being able to have what happens dude. Oh, listen, happens yeah, listen to often. this, right. So I've actually <laughs> just started. So, so my, uh, you know, my, my girlfriend, my partner that I live mm-hmm. with Jess, so she's in, she's in comms and PR and you know, we're, we're in the process of thinking about, a company together in comms and PR. So like, I mean, that's going to be thwart with issues yeah. <laughs> along this nature. That's a tightrope, dude. I'm not sure I would recommend it. <laughs> um, it just so happens that, you know, with all the skills and network that come together, it would be quite nice. <laughs> the money's just too good to, is to not pursue it. a good idea? It. <laughs> I don't, don't know. think it is. <laughs> oh, oh, man, go for it. Why not? Why not? Shoot for the I stars agree. together. Yeah, man. I agree. YOLO, it. mate. <laughs> Okay. Um, cycling back to, to HS, right? What I want to yeah. get an understanding of is 
you've gone from a very established accelerator. The brand speaks for itself. It's had a history of doing good stuff for the NHS. All of a sudden, mm. you're setting up your own brand that is yeah. purely running on your own network, your own resources, your own skills. What was the biggest challenge that perhaps you didn't anticipate around getting people to buy into this vision of yours rather than sitting on the reputation of a major brand? Um, yeah, good. it's a good question, actually. I think the notion that there isn't a team behind you and by that i mean both the immediate team that was looking after my comms for example at the mm -hmm. at, at the nhs accelerator but also the nhs brand behind you just being such a such a big thing that there's only so far that you can go wrong before the system backs you up enough to still have a purpose and a and, and clout you know i think the biggest learning curve for me was that if you do nothing, nothing happens. Yeah. And actually you need to be on permanently. It's the, in physics, it's the concept of entropy, right? So if you leave, if, if you create a sand castle, if you pack sand and you, and you put it there and just leave it, it will just go back to a sand dune. Like it's not the, the chances of it staying as a sand castle are minimal to zero yeah. over time, right? Well, they are zero over time. And that's the, that's the thing with, with your own business. There are no laurels to rest on. You cannot do it. Everything that you need to do to build that sandcastle, you need to be doing constantly. Maintaining it is another thing that also needs to happen, but then you need to be building on top and all of that is a constant on, constant go. Annual leave is not the same thing, you know, <laughs> nor, nor should it be, nor should you want it to be, but if it's the thing that you love and, and, and all the rest of it. But what I would say is that going from an accelerator to an accelerator, going from a, a a team fund like overfunded accelerator yeah. into one extremely underfunded that you've got to do yourself and bootstrapped and all the rest of it. It was, it was for me, you know, I'm actually going to call it unlearning my entitlement. That's what I'm going to call it. I was as a, I mean, yeah, well paid in the NHS, very hierarchical from the management side people looking after your diary, people looking after your everything else, you know, you can come in and direct as a director and you can literally just sit there and say what you think needs to be done. And then you're just held to account on what you say. There's very little, there was very little doing for me at that point based on how high I'd got, mm -hmm. which given, which gave me the sense of entitlement that I thought things should be done for me. And actually that led to a quite an unhappy place because when things weren't being done for me, I was expecting things to be done for me, but there was no one there to do them for me. So I had to do them myself, myself and I begrudged doing it myself. Whereas actually, if you fast forward to where I am now, I fucking love doing all this shit myself, man. Like it's, yeah. it's so much better because I'm not, I'm only, I'm accountable to myself and myself only, which is amazing. Um, and, and I decide who does stuff for me because it comes out my own purse. And actually that then has a business case behind it, which then makes me think about, all the, the resource that was, you know, waste before, you know, and all, all the rest of it. So yeah, unlearning my entitlement is the, is probably the biggest lesson I had going from employed in my own accelerator kind of to then, you know, running my own and, and having it as my own business. I think that's very interesting. And I think something that a lot of entrepreneurs need to do and good ones do at an extremely, extremely high level is being able to put yourself in your counterpart's shoes, right? So yep. if I'm trying to sell something 
into somebody, right? So if a startup is looking to come onto your accelerator, if I'm trying to sell our services as a product studio into a founder or a company, it is not particularly valuable for me to sell on what I'm looking for from the sale. I need to understand what that person's motives are, what their pressures are, yep. um, who they're going to have to sell this into eventually, you know? Um, and what I want to get an understanding for is from a VC's perspective or from an accelerator's perspective, what are the pressures? What are the needs? What are the desires of people running an accelerator that perhaps founders mm. haven't had an insight into? You know, if you're going to gain a spot on your accelerator, what are the truths you're trying to fulfill mm. um, to consider it a success? Mm. Yeah, good question. And actually, I think the number one thing here that I would like to probably the bit of value that I'd like to give here to the startups this thing that might be going on to accelerators is remember, an accelerator is not a democracy. You are not entitled to the most or the best help just because you're on that accelerator. Those people on the accelerator with you are competing for the attention of those running the accelerator because those running the accelerator are measured on their successes. If you require the most help, but you're not the best startup, something's gone wrong because ultimately I'm going to stack my chips against the startup that is doing the best and has the greatest chance of success. And so I'm going to disproportionately spend most of my time on the ones that I know are going to be successful, which creates a slight bit of conflict because reputationally in the space, you also need to look after everybody within a cohort because you don't want people going out saying that, oh, they treated me terribly, they thought I was terrible, they, they said I was going to fail and, and all this negativity coming out. But actually that might be the truth. And so it comes this thing of, of, of like, actually as, as, as the person running the accelerator, you've got you've to help those that you think aren't going to be successful or aren't going to do as well. You have to kind of make them realize it and, and still give them some opportunities, but the opportunities to realize where they're at and where they might need to change or pivot or all the rest of it. And I think that's where the, that's where humility comes in, which is probably my next tip, which is be coachable, be, have humility. You know, the people running a sector specific accelerator will have a great deal of knowledge about that sector and about what you might do in terms of sales or growth or, or tech development or all the rest of it. So don't treat their feedback like you might treat everybody else's feedback, which is my, you know, one of my standard tips, which is listen to it, but don't listen to all of it. You know, if, 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 an, if somebody running a sector specific accelerator that has helped a lot of successful companies become more successful is telling you something that is feedback that you should probably listen to. And so being on, being on an accelerator, you know, it can be a bit of a minefield. It's, 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 it's difficult to extract the most value. It's difficult to, um, you know, show you're being the best and, and that you're doing everything. But I'd, I, I just, again, it probably comes down to intent. You know, if, if you, if you intend to do the best with every single introduction because it's best for your company, if your intent is just to grow your company and, and that, and you're true to that, you'll do fine on an accelerator because you'll be good. You'll, you'll do things like 
you know, for, for one of our standout companies, you know, Febris, when they were on the accelerator, you know, I, I used to give Alina one introduction. She turned it into four introductions because she wouldn't leave that meeting without getting four introductions deep with that person and getting introduced to more people. And then all of a sudden people would end up contacting me that I'd not even introduced her to saying, Oh, I'd met, I met Alina. She's great. Like, what do you think? You know? And, and so it goes full circle. So I think if your intent is just to grow your company and be the best company that you can be, I think that's the that's the biggest and best piece of advice that, that I would give and, and don't expect the help to come to you. I think that's there's something in there um, that you've touched on where it reminds me of an ecosystem, right? Mm. So if you imagine an accelerator as a bulb, okay? Mm. A bulb has the opportunity to introduce you to a whole bunch of different people, different opportunities, whatever that's gonna be. If you don't turn that bulb into a forest, you are doing that bulb an injustice, right? I have mm-hmm. a, a pretty strong belief that everybody has uh, in their network an A, B, C, and a D level, right, mm-hmm. of their network. It is a very hard skill, but it is your job as a founder to go into a meeting and to get access to the A or B level, right? Mm-hmm. You have one hour to showcase enough potential, enough value, enough opportunity to be worth an introduction to an A or a B, mm. right? Mm. If you get mm. that A or a B, your, your motivation and your goal is exactly the same. I need to showcase value, potential, everything else so that I get introduced to another network. And that's mm. how it starts to grow. And then when it starts to grow, you need to nurture it on a consistent basis, right? If you have an intro or you have a coffee with somebody and then you leave it at that for two, three months, total waste utter waste if you're not giving them updates or if you're not yep. sending them something do you know what people is so undervalued ask for an opinion right if you have two money shots of your app and you say we're designing this app this is the yeah. look and feel that we're we're taking it you know don't send them an entire ux ui design they're never going to flick through it but give them something they can taste look at for two minutes just engage them be present in their Dude, mind you you sent me this exact email like three days ago i did <laughs> i did <laughs> you literally you literally did this <laughs> and i literally replied straight away yeah, yeah exactly but i literally you know? replied straight away because it was easy for me to reply exactly it's about keeping it simple keeping it fun keeping it light keeping it relevant and mm. all of a sudden your network is engaged and and it changes the way that they think about you beyond just oh i had a coffee with this person so, oh okay they've got something going on they're making progress something's happening yeah I'm open to understanding where they're going further. And I think nurturing yeah. that network is, is so key. I love, you, you, just to go further on that as well, mate. Mm. So I'm, I consider myself an ecosystem builder. So I'm, I'm, I'm a community guy. I've got, I'm at the center of all the different bits going on and I, I'm a connector of people and all the rest of it. But as you quite rightly put, you know, the different tiers of people, no matter who it is, I won't wreck a good intro. I won't wreck a good relationship with a bad introduction. That's where I'm. No, no, no. And I think, and I think that's the thing. You know, people will expect an intro to to somebody that they know I'm connected to, but I think if I'm not going to do that, it's worth just asking me why or what what could I do to be introduced? What would that person actually want from their introduction? And I think that's where it gets interesting. And another thing you mentioned there was was a simple one: updates. I read updates from companies. It's my job to find out who the scaling companies are. It's my job to realize who is doing well at the moment. 
I say to most people when I have meetings with them, stick me on your investor updates or your newsletter, whatever, whichever one it is. So few, I would say 1%, 5%, something in that region actually do that. And I can probably, I can name you the, the five companies that I'm <laughs> like on in, in, in the last, in the last four weeks. But like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a remarkably low number of people. And that's probably because they, either they don't do those updates, which is fair enough, or, um, or they just forget or, or don't, or maybe they don't feel like they are actually allowed to do that because they feel like it's spamming. At the end of the day, if you think you're spamming, then you probably are spamming. So write a shorter newsletter. Um, <laughs> but actually just update people because particularly from the investment world, I'm not talking about just me here. I'm talking about all investors. They'll, they'll read updates because they want to know who's scaling. They want to know who's doing well and they want to get in at the earliest stage possible. So um, no, I, I definitely think updates to people that, that especially the ones that ask for it is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think something you touched on there around valuing the network right so yeah every time you make an intro there's an element of risk okay because if it's a bad intro and the other person doesn't see value in it or you know if it's just not a good intro that is a reflection on you right so you almost have to get strategic around what you let people know is out there you know a lot Mm. of people don't know the A's exist or, Mm. you know, some of the B's exist, you know, you have to be Mm. strategic around what you show them around the possibilities. And then as they grow and develop, then you start to introduce them to the higher echelons of the network, you know? Um, So for for any startup in this space, I think respecting people's networks is really important because if you show their network respects, then they're more likely to be open to nurturing it in the future Um, and value your own network. You know, your network is something that should be growing on a consistent basis, don't waste people's time, you know, be, be value people's Absolutely. time. And, uh, and yeah, that's kind of the recipe to growing it, you know, just, just respect it. Um, I'm going to make a quick shift. Um, you've obviously come across a lot of different startups at this point in the game. I want to understand some of the most common mistakes that are avoidable, you know, mm. for, for any startups looking to make something happen in the health tech space. You know, what are the easy don't do's? Yeah. Um, an easy don't do is to fill a deck with assumptions. That's probably the, that's probably the number one thing. Um, and tied into that is this thing about market sizes and, and yeah, don't, don't be like ludicrous with your market size just to try to get the investment, if you know what I mean. But I think, I think, um, decks are full of assumptions for a lot of reasons you know new ideas and new spaces you do have to assume some things um it's okay to assume some things especially if you declare that they're assumptions but test as many assumptions as you as you can um reasonably do it's you know if if the, the biggest the biggest problem that i see is that when a deck's when a deck's full of assumptions, it, especially ones that are, that could have easily been tested, and to go one stage further, ones that I actually know the answer to myself, it puts people in hot water very quickly. And now I'm I'm not a particularly intimidating person to pitch to. I will always lean on the side of actually being helpful and just how can we improve this? Who can I introduce you to that might actually help you make this better? So that's always my kind of way of that's where I'm comfortable on this. Um and I would always 
try and give give value to people as well but there are people that are not as nice as me that you mm-hmm. could end up presenting to that would just be like i know that's incorrect so get out you know like we're in for half an hour but actually this is five minutes in and, and no it's not it's not for me sort of thing so there's definitely 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 test your assumptions the biggest assumption that i that i tend to see it well there's two the, fir- the first biggest assumption is that you have to sell to the nhs you don't there are many customers in health tech there are consumers themselves patients people uh, that can buy things the private sector can buy things insurers can buy things employers can buy things various emerging markets globally can buy things there are many business models that don't include the nhs and there's no such thing as the nhs there's a hundred thousand organizations that have the same logo but that's mm. about it which basically comes on you know brings me on to my second point which is that the other assumption that i see is that um the assumption that you can scale based on doing something in one place huge assumption that is made um in healthcare and actually it it just isn't true and that's because healthcare organizations in the uk have their own structures they're not connected in any way there are a few things in primary care which are connected like gp practice confederate and there's a few bits that you can do at that kind of level um but on the whole you need to have done deals in a few places to prove that you can scale so in terms of trying to get like series a money off the back of one contract you know one pilot two pilot, you know it, it's it's not a thing. There are very few problems to solve in healthcare that are experienced in the same way everywhere. Those are the problems that you need to find if you're looking to do particularly an NHS business model or even a private sector model. You know, it needs to be a problem that's faced in a really similar way in every hospital either way. So it's finding those problems. And there are a few good examples, like Perfect Ward is one that does stuff around inspections because inspections what can really change around the around the country with that, or doctor doctor with patient communication. So there's a few of these companies that do that sort of stuff. But that, that those are kind of the, the the top points is that think about other people that you can sell to. Um don't assume that you can scale based on being in one place. Um yeah, those those are two those are two key points. Very cool. Um, so HS, as you mentioned, is transitioning from an accelerator mm. through to a fund. I want to mm. get a feel for what does that journey look like from A to B? Because I know a lot of accelerators <laughs> look to try and make this shift. Indeed. Uh, it's long. It's long, mate. <laughs> it's long. <laughs> yeah, I quite, I, you know, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm a very open person. I, I, I enjoy talking about this stuff. You know, Alex and I just enjoy this journey of of what we're trying to do. You know, the notion that we were, you know, not I suppose were we not even thirty years old and we sat down and had this idea that we were just like we're going to own our own VC fund. You know, we were just like, what's the biggest, yeah, biggest fucking thing that you can just aim for here? Yeah. Like, let's not fuck around. Let's just <laughs> let's just let's just get let's this shoot. done. Yeah, let's just shoot for the stars. You might hit the moon or something in between a planet. Sunset's not um, bad from the moon, mate. Yeah, well, indeed, indeed. So, so that was the idea. Now we we ran the accelerator to get the metrics. So to raise a fund, you need to basically prove that you can scout, select and support the best startups. Basically, that's what you need to prove. And so we proved that through our accelerator and our metrics. Um, Obviously, with all the other stuff that I do, you know, writing for Forbes, the podcast, Mm -hmm. which is now in 99 country, you know, all that stuff means our reach is enormous. our ability to select them comes from look at our hit rate from the accelerator 
our hit rate cohort one, we had companies that were successful cohort two, still company, you know, Mm -hmm. it normally takes three cohorts for an accelerator to get anything. So there's that data that backs it up. And then there's the support ecosystem. So that is everything that we built to support the accelerator companies, as well as all our personal networks and all the rest of it, all of that now goes into that. So we basically proved that, okay, we've got the metrics here to raise the fund now. To raise a fund, you've basically got to go to people that invest in venture funds. So not normal investors that invest in startups, people that invest in the people that invest in startups. So just as uh, it's like an exponential curve, mm-hmm. but that way in terms of how many there are. So, yeah. and they're intentionally invisible as well. So they will find you. <laughs> so you've, so you've just got to put these, these things out. Um, and, and you know, the fact that you are raising the, 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 the reasons why you're you're going to be the best the only health tech fund in the uk the the, the network that you've got on all these things and then you then you go networking you go to these these uh, membership clubs and and all the rest of it and you meet one person they introduce you to a couple more and these people don't have websites and they don't have all this stuff but they have a lot of money and you know family offices um you know, high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals, which mm. is a thing, you know, yeah. um, incredible journey that we've been on, like with all this stuff, you know, big corporates as well, you know, big pharma companies, hospital groups in the US, they all have venture funds that they could invest in other funds. Um, things called fund of funds, which are just funds raised to invest in other funds invested in by people who raise it. You know, it it's all very meta when you get to that point, but basically organizations and humans with lots of money are who we need to find to do that. Now we've met many of them and we've, done a lot of learning ourselves just as we would expect of startups on a raising journey um and you know we've iterated what we're saying what we're doing how the fund would be structured all the rest of it it's all variants on a theme like it's not really changed much but we know how to present ourselves a lot better now to those people um and ultimately you know we're in we're in some pretty pretty punchy conversations at this point to, to land something this year obviously with COVID-19 happening with share prices of, of listed companies yeah. just going through the floor understandably that has not helped and we've had a few emails of people that we were in latter stage conversations with yeah <laughs> um just being like money in the bank's gone right down boys and unfortunately uh yeah it's not it's not going to happen because we just don't have the operation cash so um you know so so things like that are happening but we, you know we even had that with brexit when brexit happened mm. you know there was a european fund that was like you're not european anymore so see you later you're like oh for f- yeah yeah. I'm with you. It's like it's... very frustrating politically, but um, yeah. So, so, so look, these things happen, but look, raising a fund is long, but it's the same as being a startup. You just got to go on the journey. You've got to learn as you go. You've got to be humble. You've got to, you've got to show that you're passionate. You've got to show that you've got motivation. You've got to show that you're going to run a, you're going to run through a brick wall a hundred times over to deliver ROI for those investors that want to invest in you made complicated by the fact that we are first time fund managers. Mm. Um, but some fund of funds look favorably on that because first time fund managers do very well in the metrics because they have access to a new market, which we do, you know, we're looking to be a specialist health tech fund. One does not exist in the UK. There are people that do it, that do it well. There are, there's octopus, there's optum, a couple of other venture funds like that, that do health tech relatively well. And, you know, I know the guys at both of those places and stuff, but, you know, there's, there's not a dedicated fund to it, not, not a sizable one anyway, um, that we'd be looking to raise, but just like anything else, dude, it's a journey. How has your experience in evaluating startups, whether it's from an investment perspective or from Mm. onboarding them into an accelerator atmosphere impacted and influenced the way that you are approaching 
collecting this fund and putting it together? It's interesting. I think it's, it makes it very easy for us to, to have conversations with potential LPs, limited partners, people who invest in funds. It makes it very easy to have those conversations just because you're sort of operating on a level of, I know how pitches go. I know what we're meant to do here. I know what we're meant to say. So let's just cut straight to the point. So you can literally just go in and you don't need to show them a slide deck. You don't need to talk them through and the market sizes and our value proposition is, and there are this amount of people. You don't need to do that. You literally, it's allowed us the confidence, I guess, to go in and, and, and just be like, here's our backgrounds. Here's why we're the best people to be raising this fund. The, 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 you know the ppm of the fund like the the structure and stuff details you know all this other stuff details but look Mm -hmm. here here's me james this is what i've done this is why i'm good here's alex he's here's why he's good and it comes down to that thing of investing in startups people invest in people people invest in the team we're the best people to be doing this and this is why yeah we've done this accelerator and we can go into those metrics and all that stuff but actually look we're here doing this thing this is why this is what we're going to deliver and this is how we're going to do it and it's I suppose, I suppose seeing all those startups and doing all of that allows us the confidence to do that because quite frankly as well, you know, if a startup, if a startup similarly came in and, and presented like that with that confidence to us, um, and there's a very, there's a difference in confidence and arrogance and, and, you know, and all the rest of it. But if you can walk that line very carefully and you can talk about what you've achieved and all the rest of it, and just say, I am the best person to do this because, and here's my unfair advantage and all the rest of it, which is the sort of language that we talk in in those LP meetings. Um, you know, very interesting for us to think about yeah. investing from that point of view, you know? 100%. Um, again, it talks in talking around, you know, establishing yourself as a thought leader in the space, as having that unfair advantage, mm. the podcast, the HS podcast, like you said, is in 99 countries. You know, we need to throw a party when it hits a hundred, even if it's remote, we need to have a good <laughs> I keep time. Looking every day, dude. Yeah. Hit it was that Bhutan. Refresh. Bhutan was our 99th. So <laughs> yeah, we're big, we're big in Bhutan now. <laughs> okay. 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 I'll, I think I'll, probably uh, someone accessed it in, on like a flight to like New Zealand. I think that's just given to my country. <laughs> I'll chuck a VPN somewhere you don't have it so we can hack the system. We can make that I think happen. That's, that's what we need to start doing, mate. That is definitely yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How has, becoming an influential content creator you know you're doing stuff yeah. with forbes in in yeah. this space really showcasing some of the best and brightest yeah. in the world in this space how has that platform given you access to some of the most exciting startups and how has it influenced your ability to raise the fund yeah good question it's opportunity it's opportunity so i mean i mentioned them already once but you know gary vaynerchuk will talk about this to death right with all his content about just put out content and it will lead to stuff people will see you more you're more visible you're doing stuff um it is it is literally just that i mean to put that into context you know because because of the because of the content i started doing because of the writing i started doing it led to forbes because of speaking to loads of startups all the time and adding loads of value it made sense to put that on audio for a podcast the audio on the podcast has led to people wanting to be on the podcast. It's led to people wanting to get in touch with the people on the podcast. So it's led to people getting investment through the podcast, which means that they're also interested mm. in investing in the fund. And so it, it, what it does, it provides a central place for, for the whole ecosystem to gather. And actually that's one thing I'd say as a concept that's been quite 
difficult for us to do as HS and a problem for us to solve is that what is the physical manifestation of, of what we are? You know, we haven't got a 50,000 square foot co- co-working space that is the health tech space where all this stuff happens. So it's been how do we innovate to actually create this sort of central place and we've now you know got well before covid anyway we had the event series which was like a monthly turning into like a somewhere between a meetup and an event and a talk and a a therapy session for everybody and like (laughs) and a a networking event it was something in between all of it which was great because it was adding just shed loads of value so there was that there was the podcast but as i say it's all opportunity and how it stacks onto each other. And I think to put that into context, you know, if I look at, I audited my own emails between November the 1st and December the 14th, because I was updating the deck. So in a six week period, when I looked at my HS email, my Forbes email, my podcast email, um, and you know, all the other bits and bobs are just mm-hmm. people I've helped. And, and then all my LinkedIn messages and my Twitter messages. And I, I looked at all of that 77, health tech companies at seed stage contacted me in a six week period. That's crazy. So when you're talking about raising a fund, when you can say that you can legitimately tell an LP, an investor into the fund, you can say, I see 77 people call it 50 a month. I see 50 startups a month that are brand new. Those are new contacts. Those are first contacts. We can legitimately invest in 1% of our deal flow which is what's going to give us exponential returns for you because we're only going to pick the top 1% because we're seeing this amount. We, we can put all of those into context as to how good they are because we can rank them, we can score them, we can see literally who's the best. And so all the content has led to all the deal flow, which gives us the competitive advantage because we're accessing people that nobody else is accessing and we're also able to pick the best out of those pools as well. So um, that's what gives us the advantage from that perspective. Very powerful, huh? Just for creating a thought yeah. leadership around around your topic. I think that the knock on effects are un- you don't even see them the whole time. Correct. You know, some a lot of these things Correct. happen in the dark, and you know, you just end up seeing the results of it, which I think is is so cool. Um, I'm conscious that we are coming towards the end of this podcast. I have I've had so much fun on this, and I have a couple quick fire questions that I like to get off just at the end of a podcast. They change cool. every time. Cool. Um, what is the best and the worst piece of advice you've been given in this game? Oh God. Um, the, okay. So the best, I'd say the best piece of advice is it's def it's, it's humility. It's what I, it's what I learned in that policy job. That that's the best piece of advice I've been, I've been given, which is when you go to a new place, you learn, you don't go in all guns blazing saying you learn. And I think that that has, bled into so much of what i've done since um did you say the worst piece of advice worst piece of advice yeah um yeah there are there are there are lots of there are lots of people that try to give me advice and it always comes from a good place is all i would say yeah um i think there are things that have just been fundamental to the way that i communicate um that people have tried to change you know sometimes i swear sometimes i get a bit excitable sometimes all these different things it's like oh you need to tone it down you need to do it and i'm like actually no i can't this is what it, it is makes, at this point makes me more that yeah yeah you take it or leave it yeah. yeah i completely agree with that man if you're not yourself then you know why are you in this game you know you, you put it. it out there people like it they don't like it cool it is what it is you know um what has been your biggest mistake and what did you learn from it 
Um, I would say coming back to one thing we talked about before, um, it was entitlement. Yeah. Um, it was the notion that I deserved something from life. I deserved something based on how hard I'd worked. I, I, when frankly I didn't, <laughs> and also that isn't how the world works anyway. Yep. <laughs> um, and so what, what I learned from that was just a, a fundamental unpicking of that entitlement, which has led to so much more happiness because I no longer am feel entitled to anything. When something goes wrong, I don't blame anything. I'm just like, well, that is what it is. So now we've just got to move on and innovate. So it's made me a better innovator. It's made me far happier. Um, and I don't have that ego that I'm afraid to book my own meetings, which, you know, <laughs> Yeah, imagine 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 being crippled by your own ego so much that you couldn't book a fucking meeting like what what an outrageous place to be in life (laughs) there's something interesting there in in finding the joy in this game right Mm. i think it does take a while to adjust to this reality on so many different levels where It, it's just such a shift from anything else you've experienced yeah. and being able to understand how to become joyful in what is, is quite a turbulent experience yes. um, is, is really one of the turning points for any entrepreneur, I think, you know? Yes. Um, okay. So the last one, what's your end game? Mm. So it's a moving target. I would say the, 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 the game is, the game's happiness, right? And I think you can get you can get there, but it's it's a moving target and it's going to change. I think part of happiness, particularly for me, is new things and doing new things and refreshing things and changing things. And I'll I don't think I'll ever do one thing. I don't think I'll ever um, get to a point where it's like, and this is the formula and this is what I enjoy doing because after a while I'll get bored of it and it will change again. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's been an understanding that, that that's the point. And so the end game for me really is, and it's the reason I don't set kind of go, like goals for myself in terms of like hitting certain numbers or metrics or anything. My goals that I set are always just about my system. So like I'll, I'll think, oh, okay. So a, a goal might be to wake up earlier to give myself the time to do extra stuff i'm not going to define what i need to achieve like i need to do this amount of social posts and this amount of podcasts and this amount of this i won't define it like that i'll just change my system to enable stuff and just hope for the best in that way so i just hope the the end game for me is that i've just got my system down so i just know how to get happy and stay happy um and i think that's just a constant thing of like auditing your life and going this is where I get my joy right now. So I'm going to do more of that. This is where I get none of my joy and this is what I avoid. And this is what I procrastinate for. So I'm going to pay someone to do that or I'm going to just remove it completely and do something else. So yeah, just, I think the end game is just getting to that state where that's just like in perpetual motion and you're, you're just, you're just in your life and you're happy, right? That's the, that's the game. Nice. Nice. Beautiful. All right. Let's leave it on that. James, I really appreciate you making the time to jump on the podcast. No worries, dude. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Awesome. Let's grab a coffee when we're out of our uh, lockdown situation. I can't can't wait. I've got my first virtual coffee later, so I can't wait for that. Dude, virtual (laughs) lunches are working for me right now. Like having a yeah, yeah, having a virtual lunch where you, you know, something completely outside of work where you just sit at your computer and eat. Brilliant. It's it's a human touch, you know, something to experiment with. Give it a go, man. I'll do that. I'll do a I'll do a virtual lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Good stuff. (laughs) All right, dude. Have a good one, man. Cheers. Bye.